Uh, I am the guy that you voted in as lead pastor and then immediately took two weeks off of vacation. Um, I don't recommend that uh, for your future job decisions. I don't think that that was uh, the easiest way to handle vacation, but uh, I had to hurry up and burn out the youth pastor's vacation before we brought in a new one. So uh, just in my defense, though, we uh, had already booked that uh, when, when Pat was here. So when the last pastor was here, he actually approved my vacation that I didn't take until <laughs> the lead pastor. That was, that was uh, a weird, weird season. But uh, I'm thankful for the, the time that you've given me and my family to get away. I'm thankful for the rest. I'm thankful for those who stepped in, Micah, bringing a word about servant Jim, bringing a word about forgiveness. Uh, both of those messages spoke to me, and um, I'm just I'm thankful that we're in a church body that is stacked so deep with people who can teach God's word and, and treat it well. Um, before I left, uh, we were in the book of Acts, and uh, we had a, a, just a one-off message. It was meant to be a one-off message about just how the first church ever churched. And um, it turns out we're going to have at least a two-part series because I feel like there's a part two to where we left off last time I was here. And so if you will um, just allow me a moment to get us all back on the same page. Um, in Acts chapter 3, uh, you, you have this moment where Peter and John are just going to the temple, and they're going to go pray. They're going to church like they always would. And, and the Bible says that it's about 3 p.m., and on their way in, they met a guy, a beggar, who's just parked at the gate, uh, the beautiful gate, uh, that they were entering and asked for something. Now, this man, the beggar, he doesn't have any name in Scripture that we know of, but we collectively agreed last time, uh, at least the teenagers did, that his name would be Edmund. And so we called Edmund, uh, Edmund, and we saw this moment that this man who has never walked in his entire life is healed uh, right there at the gate, and now everybody's asking questions like, how is Edmund, who's clicking his heels for the first time, running into the temple, celebrating, yeehaw, I have new legs, check out what these guys can do. Uh, and and everybody's like, I've seen Edmund here his entire life. My entire life, Edmund's been right here at the gate. I've even forgotten that he was there. He's just always there. How is this possible? And so Peter and John began preaching and teaching the name of Jesus and said, it was by the name of Jesus, by the power of Jesus that he was healed. I'm not some magic healing man who just heals, you know, broken legs all the time. It was Jesus who healed this man. Let me tell you about Jesus. Now, what is super scandalous about this happening right then is that they crucified Jesus, not like for us, that was 2,000 years ago. It was a long, long time ago. This is about two months, two and a half months after Jesus was crucified. Two months before this, uh, Peter, one of the two men that we read right here, Peter was scared that they would know who he is and know that he was a follower of Jesus and would hide from the officials. And now two months later, he's standing in a crowd of people, not only proclaiming the name of Jesus, but he's not backing down. He, he's, he's, not, he's not scared of what's going on. In fact, for him, Peter and John, they would say the only thing worth talking about in my entire life is what Jesus has accomplished in my life, what we've seen him accomplish in, in the lives of other people, what Edmund just saw Jesus accomplish. This is the only thing worth talking about, guys. I'm not going to hide from this anymore. And so two, three weeks ago when we looked at this, the question is, like, what changes a man that is a coward and scared to even mention the name of Jesus or be uh, associated as a follower of Jesus and, and who has denied Jesus, what changes a man from that to two months later, not only talking about Jesus publicly, but to the point of getting arrested, which is what we're about to read? And, and really the only explanation is that he had not just a uh, pull yourself up by the bootstraps, I'm going to change my way of thinking, I'm going to become a better man. You don't do that in two months. That's a lifetime pursuit. This is, this is like miracle-level life change. What changes a man to be that level of coward, 
to this level of bold. And what we're going to find is that it's a man who is submitted to the working of the Holy Spirit. And as the Holy Spirit is working in the church, and the first church that ever churched is figuring this out, they just said, you know what, we're going to, we're going to read God's word, we're going to pray together, we're going to, we're going to share all of our problems together, we're going to share all of our good things together, and we're going to talk about Jesus a lot, guys. That's what the first church did. They just talked about Jesus. Everything they saw Jesus do, they talked about Jesus, and now it's, they're starting to run face first into people who don't really want to hear what they have to say. Three weeks ago, um, the first church who ever churched, they began talking about Jesus and they were opening God's word. And it says that there were added to their numbers 3,000 souls. So over the course of just a few moments, days maybe, who knows how, what the length of time, but it's a short period of time, the church went from 11 people, you know, the disciples, to 3,000 people from their obedience and just you know, teaching God's word and praying and sharing what they've seen Jesus do. And now Edmund is a recipient of a miracle. He's clicking his heels together. He's excited. His legs are working for the first time. And now um, he's in the temple. And, and where we're going to pick up in chapter 4 is that they're about to get arrested, and nobody really understands what the crime is. They just, like, it's just people who don't like seeing what God is doing. You, you have anybody in your life? Like, they don't really have a reason that they don't like what you're doing. They just don't like seeing God do good stuff in your life. That's, that's what happens here. So if you have a Bible, uh, follow in Acts chapter 4, please. And it says, verse 1, it says, And as they were speaking to the people, because, you know, if people are uh, seeing Edmund walk, they have a lot of questions they want to hear. And so Peter and John gave them all the time that they had, and they're speaking to the people. The priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them, greatly annoyed, because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. There are two things that are really annoying to the, that group of people. One, uh, didn't we execute Jesus as a criminal like two months ago? Why are people still talking about it? I thought we fixed that problem. So they're annoyed that Jesus is still being proclaimed. And then it specifically says the Sadducees are there, and they're annoyed because they're proclaiming the resurrection from the dead. The Sadducees are a group of people like the Pharisees, except the Sadducees just didn't believe resurrection was possible. They believe that you live, and then you die, and you just cease being. Like, there is nothing after you, there is no resurrection, there is no afterlife, there's nothing, there's no hope past all of that. And so they're just annoyed that Peter and John are like, hey, you see Edmund healed? Let me tell you about Jesus. Jesus came to rescue us. He was born of a virgin, and, and he lived a perfect life. And we crucified him on the cross, but we didn't know what we were doing. And now he offers forgiveness. And that forgiveness isn't just for the next 10 years that you're alive or 20 years. Like this forgiveness extends into eternity because we will be resurrected. And now the priests, the Sadducees, and the scribes are greatly annoyed at this. And so what do they do? Verse 3, and they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. Now, all of this began with Edmund and the, the guy at the gate uh, at 3 p.m. That's when, that's when the crippled man was healed. So from 3 p.m. until evening, Peter and John they just talked about Jesus. They answered questions. Uh, things were happening. Hey, uh, tell me, did you, did you, let me tell you this time that Jesus walked on water, and then he let me walk on water too. That's a lot of time from 3 p.m. until sundown that they just got to talk about whatever they wanted to talk about, ask questions about this Jesus who transformed Edmund's life. All the while, Edmund is just standing right there. He's probably like doing a little tap dance. He's like, hey, check this out. Did you guys know that these legs could click on both sides? He's really impressed, and everybody else is like, yeah, Edmund, we've been walking for 40 years. We know what we're doing, uh, but Edmund's like, you, get, you don't know. When, when you celebrate God transforming something in your life, when, when, when we know someone who has had a failing marriage that has been submitted to the lordship of Jesus and Jesus has resurrected the marriage, it's beautiful and they celebrate it. 
And nobody should look at the failed marriage who's now succeeding and be like, well, yeah, of course, we've, we've had a happy marriage for 20 years. What are you talking about? There's nothing to celebrate here. No, no. When you see some transformative work, like Edmund saw with his legs, like, like we see in marriages, like we see with parents and children, it is like you just can't stop talking about it. Edmund stood there with his new working legs from 3 p.m. until evening while Peter and John answer questions, and he's just like tapping his toes or something. He's, he's so pumped to be there. But now they're arrested, and they were held in custody overnight because it was evening. And verse 4 says, But many of those who heard the word believed, and the number of the men came to about 5,000. So last time something happened, it says that the number of souls that like, began following Jesus was 3,000. And so this either means that that number has increased from three to 5,000 or that another 5,000 people have agreed. Either way you look at it, you're looking at between five and 8,000 people who say, you know what, I think this Jesus is worth following. I think that this Jesus is worth hearing more about. If he can do that with Edmund, if he can do that with Peter, who's been afraid his whole life, has been a coward, maybe, maybe there's still transformative work in this man, Jesus. Okay, so let's pause for a second. Uh, Peter's uh, uh, greatest fear, two months ago, they might arrest me. Um, the night that he was afraid that they might arrest me, or might arrest him, uh, he got all like kind of trigger happy with a sword, and he cut the high priest's servant's ear off. You guys remember that? It's in, it's in John, it's in the Gospels. And so you have, you have the, the guards coming to arrest Jesus, and Peter, he doesn't know what to do, so he grabs the sword, and he cuts the ear off. He's scared he might get arrested for that crime. Uh, there's... It's hard to find evidence of that crime because, you know, Jesus picked the ear up and slapped it back on that guy's head. And he's like, but I promise he really cut my ear off. But you have two ears, guy. Like, are you sure? Um, now he's being arrested by the very group of people that was involved with that. And what we're going to see in Peter is his greatest fear is coming to pass. The thing that he was most scared of that would happen is happening right now as we read it. And yet the Lord is providing for him boldness and courage that he did not otherwise have. He did not naturally have. When we talk as a church, when we talk as like Carpenter's Way, as, you know, as we go out of this building and we're in our families, we're in our workplace, we're dealing with our children, what are we most afraid will happen if we have total, absolute submission to Jesus? Are, are we afraid that, like, people are going to make fun of us? Are we afraid that, like, uh, the boss is going to fire us if we all of a sudden, you know, became really, really good and had high morals in our job? Are we afraid that our spouse would, would dr be driven further apart by you having total submission to Jesus? Are we afraid that our kids would no longer speak to us? What is our greatest fear about following Jesus at 100%? Because what Peter's finding out is that his greatest fear is happening right now. Verse 5 says, on the next day, uh, the rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas, the high priest. Now, uh, the guy that uh, Peter cut the ear off works for Annas. And so surely, in the last two months, Annas's servant has come to him and said, hey, boss, I know I have both ears, but there's a guy named Peter. Watch out for him. Don't let him have a sword nearby. Surely the story has kind of spread around a couple of times. Annas the high priest, Caiaphas, and John, and Alexander, and all who were in the high priestly family. And when they had set them in the midst, they inquired. They brought Peter, John, and the guy that we're calling Edmund. Uh, and they asked them, by what power, by what name did you do this? They're not very specific about the this. Like, what, what is the crime right now? He healed somebody? 
What was the crime? That he talked about Jesus one too many times? Uh, is the crime that you cut that guy's ear off, but there's no evidence of it? Like, by what power, by what name did you do this? They've been arrested overnight. They spent the night in jail. And it, I, th- I think we have uh, maybe the most important uh, lesson from this is the next verse. Then Peter says, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them. And then he breaks out in like this most courageous speech. Um, that phrase, filled with the Holy Spirit, I, I've heard used a lot in different churches. Maybe you have if you, if you visited other churches. And I think there's a lot of you know, good understanding and misunderstanding about that phrase. Here, here's what I found out. That phrase, filled with the Holy Spirit, um, occurs nine times in the New Testament, um, six of those times in the book of Acts, three of those times in the book of Luke, which means the same guy wrote it all nine times. Luke wrote the book of Luke, and Luke wrote the book of Acts, and every time he uses the phrase filled with the Holy Spirit, one of two things occurs next. The people are filled with the Holy Spirit and filled with joy, or the people are filled with the Holy Spirit and are filled with courage. One of two things happens every time this moment happens. So you have Peter, who's already a follower of Jesus, He's already kind of devoted himself. We would call him a Christian. He's, he's, he's accepted forgiveness for his sins, and Jesus has already paid for them on the cross, and the resurrection has already happened. He already has the Holy Spirit. If you're a follower of Jesus, you already have the Holy Spirit. You have all of the Holy Spirit that there is to have. He doesn't, he doesn't hide pieces of himself. Um, but then this phrase, filled with the Holy Spirit, seems to imply that now Peter is filled with courage because the Holy Spirit is empowering him. The Holy Spirit is is giving him the courage to speak the thing that he was most afraid to say, to speak the thing that would possibly get him in the most amount of trouble, to speak honestly and truthfully the power of Jesus in this moment. Here's what he says. Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by means this man has been healed, Let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, and he's pointing to the high priest and the the, the rulers and the chief of the guard and all these people in front of him, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. It's that guy. Verse 11, this Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no, one, uh, uh, no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Just like, man, just told these guys their business. There have been a few moments in my life where uh, I've been, I remember I had a job, uh, the first foster agency I worked for, and it was just really confusing. I was just praying a lot. It's like, I don't even know. I'm frustrated. I don't know. Like, I can tell my boss, you know, you haven't kept your word the last three times we, we discussed this thing. Like, you said this help was coming, and I, I'm asking for it, but the time didn't come. And I remember one moment specifically, I was praying about it, and, and it, just, it just hit me like a ton of bricks. God wants me to just be honest about this lack of follow-through, to courageously talk to my boss. And I wasn't disrespectful to my boss, um, but I was like, hey, listen, this is now the fourth time this, this discussion has had. This is the fourth time this promise was made, and I, I don't know what's next. It was something I would never normally do, but I felt emboldened or encouraged by the Holy Spirit. This is a little different. This guy's looking at the high priest and, the, and the, the chief of the guard, and he's saying, you know what? This Jesus whom you crucified, he's actually the cornerstone you, the builders, have rejected. 
And he looks at the, the high priest. He looks at all the Pharisees and all the people and says, you're trying to build something great in this nation. You're trying to build a, a group of people that follow after God. And yet the most basic piece of this building you have rejected the cornerstone of. That is, that is some boldness right there. You know, they, they crucified Jesus for saying bold things. What does Peter think might happen to him? It turns out that phrase, um, rejecting the cornerstone, uh, he's quoting something in the Old Testament. He's quoting something in Psalms. And I, I want to pause what we're reading in Acts, and I just want to look at what Peter is referencing. Um, it's, in, it's in Psalms 118. I'm going to start reading in uh, verse 17. Now, Peter could easily believe, like, as soon as he finishes the speech, they're going to just take him in a back room and kill him. Like, it's just over. But here, here's, here's what he's referencing when he says that you've rejected the cornerstone. He says, uh, verse 17, I shall not die, but I shall live and recount the deeds of the Lord. The Lord has disciplined me severely, but he has not given me over to death. Open to me the gates of righteousness that I may enter through them and give thanks to the Lord. This is the gate of the Lord. The righteous shall enter through it. I thank you that you have answered me and have become my salvation. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Do you think that the Pharisees and the chiefs have read the Old Testament? They would immediately get this reference. Edmund, who's sitting next to them during all of this, and it's like clacking his heels, and every time Peter says something like he was healed by Jesus, you know Edmund's like quietly, like, yeah, man, get him, yeah, that's great. Tell him, Jesus, yeah, tell him more about that. Look at these legs. And he's like kind of doing a jig. And then, and then he references this in Psalms. If Edmund knew his Old Testament, the references to the gate, Edmund would probably flash back. For 40 years, Edmund sat at the foot of this gate being ignored by every religious person who ever walked by. Every now and then a piece of charity comes to him. And then someone carrying the name of Jesus actually reaches down and helps him, heals him. This has got to be some celebration. So back in Acts uh, chapter 4, verse 13, it says, Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated common men, they probably had like a redneck accent or something because they're from Galilee, they're fishermen. They perceived that these guys probably shouldn't know a lot, yet they seem to know a lot. They're speaking boldly about Jesus, and we can't argue that, you know, that guy was healed. They were astonished. And they recognized that they had been with Jesus. Hey, I think I saw those guys about two months ago with Jesus. But seeing the man who was healed standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition. But when they had commanded them to leave the council, they conferred with one another. Hey, you guys get out of here for a second. Let's talk for a second. Verse 16. What shall we do with these men? For that a notable sign has been performed through them is evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem. We can't deny it. But in order that it may spread no further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in this name. Here's what their problem is. Their problem isn't that a guy was healed. Their problem isn't that God did a big thing in their life. Their only problem is that they were giving Jesus credit for it. So what they're going to do is warn Peter and John and, and subsequently every other Christian who is, they're going to go back and report to, is, listen, keep doing good things. Just stop using Jesus' name. Why do we have to put Jesus' name on everything? 
Go and heal. Go and, 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 and maybe even pray for families. Go and do good things. Go, uh, go, go into your workplaces and be really, really kind to people and have good morals, but stop saying it's because of Jesus. It's not, like, can't, can't you just do the good things? That's a really dumb warning. It's a weird warning. So in verse 18, they called them back in, and they charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. Do whatever you want. Heal people. Just don't speak or teach in the name of Jesus. Verse 19, but Peter and John answered them, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you or rather than to God, you judge. You're asking me, do, do I ignore what God told me to do and do what you said? Who's right? You guys figure that out. Verse 20, for we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. And when they had further threatened them, so they shake their finger at them a few more times, they let them go, finding no way to punish them because of the people, for all were praising God for what had happened. For the man on whom this sign of healing was performed was more than 40 years old. You can't argue with the results of a man who has not walked for 40 years standing up and walking around. You can't argue with the results of a marriage that was on the brink of breaking apart all of a sudden being healed. You can't argue with the results of a, a, a mom and a, a child not getting along and can't work this out that when Jesus was brought into the equation, oh yeah, it's, it's working out. You can't argue with results. There's a whole group of people that love the results of the church in our community. You know that when the church is active and healthy and is moving forward in Mid-County, uh, crime is going to go down, uh, prostitution is going to go down, drug use will go down, uh, people will have more satisfaction just in themselves, so you, you may even argue that mental illness and things go down, and all of the community would say, yes, I want all of those things, but why do we have to attach the name of Jesus to it? Why do we have to do anything in the name of the gospel? Why can't we just have the good things? Why can't we just get God's good things and leave God out of it completely, right guys? Can't we do that? And Peter and John are like, are you crazy? No. The only source of any good thing I've ever known, Peter and John would say, is in the name of Jesus. So what I'm going to do, Peter and John would say, I'm just going to keep talking about Jesus. I'm going to keep telling everybody everything that Jesus ever did for me. I'm going to keep telling everybody everything I've seen Jesus do in, in his name as I've gone and taught other people and I've met with people. I'm going to start telling everybody that Jesus saved that man's life, that Jesus turned this family around. I'm going to tell everybody everything I can ever think of about Jesus. And if it gets me in trouble, whatever. I don't really care anymore. Two months ago, that was the thing that Peter was most afraid of. And now with the boldness from the Holy Spirit, he just stands up and he talks about Jesus constantly. So what happens next, I'm sure Edmund is with them, but what happens next is that Peter and John, they leave, they're, they're like kicked out. They, they had the finger wagging, and then they're kicked out, and uh, they go back to church. The church that was 3,000 when they left is now 5,000 to 8,000, depending on how you read that one verse. Uh, the church has grown quite a bit in the last couple of hours that Peter and John were away. Uh, they were arrested one day, spent the night in jail, and now they're coming back the next morning. So you've got to know like, the rest of the disciples at church are sitting around like, hey, didn't Peter and John go pray at 3 o'clock yesterday? Have you seen Peter and John? I don't know where he is. It's not like they had, like, an internet, you know, broadcast, like, Peter and John were arrested last night for crimes that we've not yet identified. They just didn't know where they went. They went into the temple and never came out. Uh, maybe, maybe someone shared a rumor, but surely it's like, are they going to be crucified? Is, it, is he next? Because they crucified our friend Jesus two months ago. So Peter and John are released with a finger wagging. Don't you talk about Jesus no more now. And they go to church. And they tell them, they say, church, 
let me tell you what happened. Here's Edmund. Let me introduce you to Edmund. See those legs? Really cool story there. But let me tell you what, the, what these people said. They said they want us to go out and do good things, but they, they told us not to talk about Jesus anymore. I'm just letting you know, they said, if we talk about Jesus some more, they're going to arrest us. And so the next few verses, um, verse 23 through you know, 30-ish, are, is the response of the church. Peter and John went through a really hard thing uh, in the name of Jesus, but they went through a hard thing. They saw Jesus do some good things, but they also went through a hard thing, and they took all of it, the good and the bad, and when they got back to church, they shared it. As an update and as a prayer request, they shared it with their people. And their people did the only thing their people know how to do and the only thing that church people should be good at, and they prayed for it. And they prayed to God asking for wisdom. They prayed to God saying, God, if you want us to stop talking about you, let us know, but I think you want us to start talking about you because your promises are secure. These songs that we just sang are right here in this prayer. You have never fallen off of any of your promises. God, you are batting a 1,000% on hitting every promise you've ever made, and now you're, you're commanding us to do this thing. So we're just, I think, church, I think we're going to just trust God on this, right? And so they did. And so then you get to verse 31. At the end of their prayer, the church, after hearing the report of Peter and John and the random guy that we're calling Edmund as a joke, you get to verse 31. It says, And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, and continue to speak the word of God with boldness. There's that boldness again. If Peter and John kept what had happened to themselves, kept it a secret out of embarrassment, or it's nobody's business, or whatever, it's my personal story with God, and I don't have to tell you anything, then the church would have never gathered to pray about that, and the church would have never benefited from the boldness. The church celebrates that Peter and John went into the lion's den, so to speak, and boldly talked about Jesus and came out with a report of what Jesus had accomplished. And the church benefits from that story, and the church weighs the possible consequences of what they were warned against with the finger wagging and decided, yes, Jesus is worth it for us too. And because of that prayer, they were filled with boldness, that fear is removed from them. The first church that ever churched, they grew quickly, and they were obedient to the name of Jesus, even through threats and possible downsides. Peter's worst fear, I might get arrested for the name of Jesus, has now come true, and he's walked through it to the other side, and it turns out it's not quite as bad as he thought. They didn't crucify him. He gets arrested again in a few more chapters. Actually, if I had to be honest with you, Peter would never pass a criminal background check here. Carpenter's way. Like, Peter shows up. He wants to work in the children's department. The dude has some jail time stacked up. It just, it just wouldn't work out. Um, but he goes to jail a lot. Peter does eventually get crucified. His worst fear does come to pass. But he's so courageous, and he has such a history of following Jesus, that he's just like, yeah, yeah, it was good enough for Jesus, good enough for me. It's not in scripture, but uh, history says that when Peter was brought to the cross to be crucified, that he looked at the cross and he says, hey, would you guys do me a favor? Um, I don't want to hang on the cross the same way my Lord Jesus did. Can you just hang me upside down? I'd, I'd appreciate that. So history says that Peter was crucified, but he's crucified upside down. And yet you don't have that cowardly man. The pre-Holy Spirit boldness man that Peter was is now has this history of seeing Jesus do thing after thing in his life seeing the church move and, and grow in boldness and courage as they went out. Outside of this building, 
and, and really in, inside this building too. Uh, there's so much hurt. There's so there's so much so much pain. There's so so many people that that we want healing in our lives. We want healing in our relationships. We want healing for Dominic as he has his ribs, all of them broken at the same time. Every time I say it, my, my chest hurts a little. We want those things. And if, if we don't learn anything from the first church that ever churched, their blessings, their strength, their courage, their joy, their fire to keep going, their knowledge to know what the next step was, every bit of that was rooted in the name Jesus and nothing else. They weren't reading books on like, how do we make a big mega church? Nobody's churched yet. Nobody, nobody has a blueprint for this. They just believe that Jesus was really the cornerstone. If we're going to build anything worth building, we keep to the cornerstone. We trust Jesus. Sure, some people have rejected the cornerstone. Sure, some people rejected Jesus. Sure, some people will reject your motivation for doing the good things that you're called to do. You say you're doing these in Jesus, and they say, no, really, you're just selfish. You're just being, you just want people to, you want to, you, you just want to talk about how much better you are than me. You want to talk about that you hate this, right? So, so many, so many people in our, in our community, I don't know if you run into this, but if, I, if I'm a Christian, for some reason, that means I'm supposed to hate like these 10 things or something. That doesn't make any sense to me. No, no, Jesus is the only reason worth doing any of this on. And let me say two things about that um, in closing. The first is this, is that Jesus is the cornerstone of anything worth building. Don't reject Jesus. You want to build a family? You, you, want, you, want, to, you, want, to, um, you want to date? Yeah, we're, we're all my teenagers at. You want, to, you, want to, you want to have a boyfriend or a girlfriend? You want that relationship to be worth something? Build it on the cornerstone of Jesus. You want your marriage to be worth something? Find two people that are chasing after Jesus. And the closer you get to Jesus, the closer you get to each other. You want your workplace to be worth something? Walk into it praying, Jesus, how do I honor you right now? How do I submit to the authority that's over me in a way that is respectful uh, and, and brings hope and brings, brings you know, some good testimony of your name? Everything in this life that is worth building is worth building because Jesus is worth it. Jesus is the cornerstone. If, if you have anything in your life, like I've got a sweet stock market portfolio, and I just, like I hide that from Jesus. I don't want Jesus to have anything part of that. I'm, I'm telling you, uh, it's probably going to come crashing down. I can't, I mean, I'm not, obviously I'm not Warren Buffett. I mean, look at me. I'm, I'm dressed in like $20 clothes. But uh, it just won't be anything. There's no hope. There's no promises that, that survive if Jesus isn't part of it. And what Peter found out and what Paul will find out later is that even if the world takes everything away from them, as long as they have Jesus, they are far more than sufficient. They're far more than enough. Jesus warned uh, in, uh, in the Gospels, and he says, you know, um, some, some of us are, are like building castles on sand. We build this wonderful castle, and the waves, they come, and they crash, and they knock it over, Boom. But those of you who hear my word and do what I say are like the ones who build a castle on a firm foundation, on a rock. And sure, the waves come, and sure, sure it crashes, but the, the, the castle stands. Jesus is saying, if, if you make him the cornerstone of every aspect of your life, it's worth it. You're going to build something worth knowing. You're going to build a heritage for your kids to follow. You'll build a heritage for, for those who look up to you in faith to follow we build a, a, a group of people who are constantly 
bringing to this group stories of what Jesus has accomplished or prayer requests that you need Jesus to accomplish, then you are a group who will be sharing in the boldness of what Jesus is, is doing in your families, in your lives. And we, as Carpenter's Way, will benefit from these stories and your obedience to share them. And the second thing I want to say is this, is that if, if, you, um, if, you, if you would, as, as, we, as we roll through the summer, as we, uh, I think we're going to spend a, a few more weeks in the book of Acts uh, and see how this church unfolds. I would ask you, as, as you're praying for things, as you're praying for your loved ones, that you would pray that the Holy Spirit would be at work in the families here. The families that call Carpenter's Way home could use some more joy, some more courage, some more boldness. The, the fruits of the Spirit would be made evident as the Holy Spirit fills the families that call Carpenter's Way home. What, what would it look like if tomorrow, just supernaturally, we had a level of courage and a level of boldness that Jesus will accomplish every bit of what he's promised and what he set out to do through our obedience and through the obedience of others nearby? What would it look like to just watch that unravel? Would we, would we celebrate? Would we be terrified? I think what would happen is that this community would see a radical shift to more hopefulness, to more peace, to be steered less by all the, all the pieces of news that just want to make us angry and frustrated with the world. And we, just, we just have certainty and faith that, man, you know what? Take everything away from me. Jesus even promised a resurrection. You could even kill me in this moment, and still I'm better off with Jesus than I am without him. Jesus is worth it. Let me pray for you. Uh, and then uh, we will watch the queue. Lord, uh, we come to you now. Um, we thanking you, Father, that the map is so clearly pointing us to Jesus as the, the only thing that matters. I pray, Father, that we would be filled with courage and boldness, and that we would be filled with joy as we see your hand at work in our families and in our lives and our workplaces. I pray, Lord, that we would, we would see you move and that we would come back to this room with reports of your goodness and your faithfulness. That we would come back to this room celebrating that still you're batting a thousand and still you are at work doing the miraculous. I pray, Father, for those of us who we just spiritually we feel crippled. Um, I pray, God, that you put our legs back under us. And like Edmund, we would just we'd take them out for a test spin. We'd take our faith out for a test spin. And that you would rebuild in us a thriving, beating heart that is focused on you and is finding finds its peace in you, and finds its joy in you. Lord, we pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.